Hey, my name is Fernie, and I'm the pastor here at Mid City Church, and I'm so excited to welcome you to this third week of uh, our, our series, Am I Saved? And today we're really going to wrestle with the question of, am I saved? And what does salvation look like and all that kind of stuff. So get ready, because here we go. You may have heard me share this story before, but about eight years ago, I had an encounter with a very determined Christian man. So after moving to Baton Rouge and being here for a couple of weeks, I flew home to visit my family before work at the church really picked up for me. And I was really excited about going home. It had been a while since I had been home, and I was just eager to see my family and my friends and just to be in El Paso. Now, if you've ever flown out of Baton Rouge, you know that the process is pretty easy. You check in, you go up the escalator, you go through security, and I have never seen a line longer than three or four people at the Baton Rouge airport. And then you either go to the left, where there's two boarding areas, or to the right, where there's about six boarding areas, I think. It's not a big airport at all. Well, anyway, I got on my flight, and everything went smoothly. About an hour later, I made it to Dallas, where I had about an hour layover. And during that time, I ate, I bought some coffee, I walked around a bit, and, and then I walked over to my gate. Now, usually when I get to my gate, the first thing I do is put on my headphones because I hate talking to people on a plane. But at this point, because I had been eating and shopping, my headphones were put away in my backpack, so I decided to just wait and grab them later after I had settled down in my seat. Well, that was the biggest mistake ever. I boarded the plane, I found my seat, I sat down, and just as I was reaching into my backpack to get my headphones, the guy next to me leans over and says, Hey, what's your name? Now, I doubt he could see it, but on the inside, I was so mad at myself because this whole thing could have been avoided if I had just grabbed my headphones before I boarded the plane. But again, it was too late at this point, so I just put a smile on my face and I engaged this man in conversation. Now, I'll admit, at first, it was a good conversation. We talked about each other's trip, each other's families, even each other's hobbies. But then after about a half hour, he asked me the big question. He looked me straight in the eyes and he said, so what do you do for a living? Now, side note, there are many times when I don't want people to know that I'm a pastor. And it's not because I'm ashamed of being a pastor. It's because I know that as soon as they find out what I do, it's going to lead to interesting conversations that we'll, uh, we will undoubtedly disagree on. And that's exactly what happened. So as soon as I told him that I was a pastor, he got this big smile on his face, almost Grinch-like, and he said, tell me about the time you got saved. Now look, I've been in enough situations like this that I knew he was expecting me to tell him about a specific moment, a moment when everything became clear to me, a moment that I left all of my sin behind and fully gave my life to Jesus. And while some people do have stories like this, I don't want to discredit people who do, the reality is that not everyone does. Not everyone can point to one moment in their life when they knew without a doubt that they had left their old selves behind and moved towards uh, Christian perfection. In fact, I would argue 
that most of us wouldn't be able to point to an exact moment when we decided to give our life to Jesus and turn ourselves around. I think for most of us, it's more of a journey. It's a series of moments where we trust Jesus more and more, and we leave more of our sinful nature behind us. It's gradual, not instantaneous, but rest assured that it's no less powerful. So I told this guy exactly what I just told you, and he looked at me with this confused face, and he said, oh, so you're not really saved. The audacity, right? Well, everything within me wanted to uh, begin a theological debate with this man. I knew that it would be pointless. He was never going to convince me, and I was never going to convince him. So I simply looked at him and said, I guess not. And I put my headphones on my ears, and I uh, leaned my seat back, and the conversation was over. Have, has, have, have you ever asked someone or has anybody ever asked you if you are saved? Or have you ever driven down Blue Bonnet in Baton Rouge and seen the guy with a big cross and a sign asking people if they're saved? Or, or maybe have you uh, been to a funeral recently or someone that you love is very sick and you're wrestling with the idea of whether or not they are saved because you know that death is imminent. I cannot tell you the amount of times that I have met with families before a funeral. And the very first thing they ask me is, do you think they are in heaven? Oh, they also ask, like, how do we know they're saved? There is this fear that bubbles up in people when we talk about being saved. But what if I told you that this conversation around being saved doesn't have to raise our anxiety or make us hide for cover? Instead, I think that understanding what it means to be saved and what it takes to be saved can change our whole perspective on life. So first, let's begin by making sure we're all on the same page by having a clear understanding of what it means to be saved. So listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says. It says, you are saved by God's grace because of your faith. Now, notice something really important here. It doesn't say you will be saved. It says you are saved by God's grace because of your faith. I think so often when we talk about being saved, we immediately think about being saved after we die and going to heaven and experiencing eternal happiness. And while that is part of being saved, it's not the whole of it. See, the writer of Ephesians makes it very clear that we are saved here and now and not some distant unknown day. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, put it this way, it's not something at a distance, it is a present thing, a blessing which through the free mercy of God ye are now in possession of. Nay, the words may be rendered, and that with equal propriety you have been saved, so that the salvation which is here spoken of might be extended to the entire work of God, from the first dawning of grace in the soul till it's consummated in glory." In other words, being saved does bring an assurance about what happens to us after we die. It brings an assurance that we will be reunited with our loved ones who have gone before us. But being saved also brings us an assurance about life right now. When things go wrong, being saved gives us an assurance that things will be okay. When we must make difficult decisions, we have an assurance that things will be okay. Because we are saved, we have an assurance every single day that God is with us. And because of that, we can face whatever life may throw at us. Yes, being saved is about what happens after death, but it's also about what happens here and now. Because of our faith in God, we have been saved and have received an assurance about both the future and the here and now.
Now, how is it possible that by simply having faith in God, we can be saved, like the scripture in Ephesians says? Now, the reason I think, I think the reason this is such a hard concept to understand is because so many people have misunderstood and mistakenly taught about being saved. I've been to too many churches and heard way too many sermons where people are led to believe that the only way to be saved is by doing enough good works to earn your salvation. So literally, there's this expectation that when you say yes to Jesus, you must be perfect from that point forward, or at least do as much good as possible. Otherwise, you will end up losing your salvation, or in some places, they even say you're going to go to hell. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a huge weight to live life with, right? The reality is that none of us are perfect. None of us are able to fully live, leave sin behind overnight. None of us can just wake up one day and say to ourselves, nothing can tempt me anymore. Now, for those of you who have struggled with addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, or any other addictions, you know how difficult it is to just leave it all behind one day. For those of you who have struggled with keeping your finances straight, you know how difficult it is to just one day leave those struggles behind. For those of you who have struggled with anxiety and depression, you know how difficult it is to just one day leave it all behind. For those of you who have struggled with anger management, you know how difficult it is to just leave it all behind one day. For those of you who struggle with vanity, you know how difficult it is to just leave it all behind one day. For those of us who are human and have struggled with anything, we know how difficult it is to just one day wake up and for those things to no longer have any power over us. Overnight, with one decision, it doesn't happen. But through a journey, through a set of daily choices, through continued diligence, we can begin to have more and more power over our struggles until eventually, Wesley taught, we could reach Christian perfection. We could become so much like Jesus that our human struggles would have no more power over us, right? It's a journey. Now, Wesley called this journey, uh, this, this journey, this process, uh, sanctification. It's a lifelong journey through which we are enabled by God to become more and more dead to sin and more and more alive in Jesus. It's a gradual journey, one that slowly but continuously chips away at our inclination to sin. But how do we kickstart this journey? Well, Wesley taught that it was through justification or justifying grace that this process of sanctification, also known as sanctifying grace, would begin. Now, justification is just another word for pardon and forgiveness. Wesley would teach this in one of his sermons. It's the forgiveness of our sins, and because of that forgiveness, it's also a reconciliation with God. So justification needs to be understood through two lenses. It is both past and immediate at the same time. Confusing? So let me explain. As Christians, we believe that the moment Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried in the grave and then rose from the dead, that in that moment we were justified and made right with God. So this is the part, the past part of justification, right? It's already happened. It's already been offered to us. But there also comes a moment in our lives when by faith, we recognize that God is offering us this free gift of grace. And it is in that moment that we receive the gift that was offered to us so long ago. When Wesley experienced this moment, he said this of it. He said, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. In other words, forgiveness and reconciliation have been offered to us way before we even knew it was there. And then a moment comes in our lives when this gift becomes so obvious to us. And in that moment, we say yes to it. 
Now, notice that I said it was a gift offered to us way before we even knew it was being offered. So this is what Wesley called prevenient grace or the grace that goes before us. So basically, Wesley understood that way before we had enough faith to put our full trust in God, God was already active and moving in our lives. And prevenient grace actually makes a lot of sense. So just think about it. Can you think of a time when you were just doing something that you knew you shouldn't be doing? Even if you went through with it, that small voice inside your head, that intuition telling you not to, is proof of God moving in your life way before you even knew it. And for Wesley, this was a very important part of salvation. See, for him, it was prevenient grace that helped us prevent the total destruction of God's image living within us. It's this prevenient grace that tells us we have gone too far. It's prevenient grace that tells us we messed up. It's even prevenient grace that tells us that we need to ask for forgiveness. It's prevenient grace that keeps the image of God living within us unbroken. So prevenient grace is God moving in our lives way before we're even aware of it. Justifying grace is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and reconciling us to God. But it's also the moment when we accept this good news for ourselves. And it's in that moment, it's that moment that leads us into a journey called sanctification or sanctifying grace, which helps us become more like Jesus every day and leave our sinful nature further and further behind. Now, for the sake of clarity, because I know this is a, a difficult concept, let me try to explain grace to you one more way. So the day I found out that my wife and I found out that we were going to be parents, I immediately felt this immense love toward this child. I didn't know her gender, what she looked like, when she would be born, or even how many sleepless nights we would have. But without knowing anything about her, I was already head over heels for her and already willing to do anything I could for her. The reality is that even though I love this child with every ounce of my being, she doesn't quite know what that even means or even realize the extent of my love for her. This is like prevenient grace. She is loved and forgiven of everything she's ever going to do before she even knows it. But there will come a day in her life when my love for her will become very clear to her and she will knowingly return that love for me as well. This is like justifying grace. The love has always been there, but there comes a moment when she accepts it for herself. And then from that moment on, we will continue to grow in our love for each other. Susie and I will teach her more and more, and she will mature more and more, and she will understand more and more every day that there is nothing she can do to make me or her mother stop loving her. This is like sanctifying grace, a journey of growth. Does this make sense? So am I saved? Absolutely. I am saved because God has been moving in my life way before I even knew he was. I am saved because there have been moments in my life when God's love and forgiveness became so real to me that I had no other choice than to say yes to God. I'm saved because every single day, even the ones when I fall short, which is most days, I see God moving in my life, helping me and challenging me to be more like Jesus in this world. I am saved because of who God is and what God has done for you and for me. And all God asks in return of us is that we can have enough faith to believe that Jesus loves us, that Jesus gave his life for us, and that because of Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. The reality is that faith is all that is required to be saved. Faith in who God is, what God has done, and what God is continuing to do in our lives. 
Faith is the only condition that is given to us so that we may be saved. My prayer is that we may have enough faith, like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, to believe that we are saved by God's grace and nothing more. Because God has been moving and God will continue to move in our lives. May it be so. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mid-City Church Sermoncast. If you would like to dive deeper into today's topic, visit midcity.church sermoncast to find a home sheet that goes along with this message. On the home sheet, you will find scriptures, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge that goes along with this sermoncast. If this has been a helpful resource to help you grow in your faith, we want to invite you to support our ministry here at Mid-City Church by giving today. To give, text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to the number 225-307-0662. Thanks and see you next week.